and live from the internet, it's ZN Live. And we're very excited today because we have an action pack group today. Uh, we have John Worth, EU influencer, train expert extraordinaire, and we're going to come to him in a minute. But before that, we want to go to Prague to see Jesus and Joaquin. We're going to talk about EU Space Week. So, Jesus, what are you doing in Prague? So, actually, we have been here uh, on the US, uh, the US Space Week uh, for several days. Yesterday, there were really cool conference about the space and metaverse. So, we were really enjoying a lot. And now I'm here at the OSPA with Joaquin. Hello. Because we're very, very happy <coughs> because we have a project, a really cool project that we have won with them. Uh, where we're going to create some mock-ups on virtual reality to show actually what the OSPA is doing. So it's going to be a first step of OSPA on the metaverse. Yes, yes the first yes, stone. The first stone. So I don't know. So we are very happy uh, to, to, to be working with you for, for this project. Thank you so much for accepting the challenge. Okay. <laughs> Thank goodness. you. Thank you. And actually, look, we are on the whole of EUSPA. You can see here this satellite, which is really, really cool. And we are we are very excited about this project. So. Thank you, Joaquin, for having Thank us. Thank you. Sorry, I just <laughs> this is ruining the life. Come on. So, so, so Joaquin, you. tell us <laughs> if you're okay. So, what what are you most excited about with this uh, virtual reality project, Joaquin? You have to, no, you know, for us, the thing is we need to start because we hear a lot about the metaverse and all these things. And we are organizing conference and we are listening to the users because at the end, this is what we are doing. And uh, we do consider and we do believe that we need to start uh, moving the machinery in this direction. So this project for us is key because it's the first one and it's the one that we really use for paving the way, as we are saying uh, always. In the in the metaverse so thanks a lot for for accepting the the challenge i'm really happy to to have you here motivated uh, working together we have excited uh, meeting today so wow congratulations for your team thank okay. you so much yep. and i think you couldn't have a more uh, excited metaverse expert than jesus with you and as everybody who's watching this knows we love going into the metaverse we've done a lot of tests and we've got uh, different different activities there. So thank you very much. Uh, I'll leave you to uh, your work and uh, great to have you on the show. Now, to another thank form you. of mo right. mobility, which is closer to, uh, I would say, closer to Earth, uh, we go to John. John, you've been moving around a lot around Europe, as we've been talking about on our channels. Uh, so are you now finished with your big cross-border rail experiment and what is the big takeaway from that experiment right so the main cross-border rail project is now complete um it was thirty thousand kilometers by train um almost a thousand kilometers by bicycle even as well where the trains were not working um and uh 186 trains in total so that was all done in the summer so basically test what works and what doesn't work in cross-border railways in the European Union. So I've done all the research now, and now comes the hard part. That's the political advocacy that basically says, hey, European Union, this is what doesn't work. And these are the ways and means that you could potentially fix it. So having discovered all of these problems, I'm now basically doing that policy advocacy towards Brussels decision makers and saying, these are places where with comparatively little money and comparatively quickly, you could manage to make a serious step forward for um, People want to take the train to go on holiday or even people who are crossing the border on an everyday basis. They want to commute to go to school, university for their work. 
Uh, and basically, the good news is actually there are quite a lot of places, quite a lot of borders in the European Union where you could improve railways quite a lot, quite quickly, quite easily that I discovered throughout the course um, of the project. And ultimately, I crossed 95 borders within the European Union throughout this project. And out of that came 20 projects, basically places where the European Union could comparatively quickly achieve uh, some considerable steps forward uh, in their in their railway policy. And that impacted 19 member states of the European Union. So that's what I've done so far. And now the hard policy advocacy uh, has to begin. Okay. Now, I saw that you talk about uh, nine, night trains. Is that one of your recommendations that we need to bring those back? Because these were things that were actually in Europe and, and, and stopped or are still there. What, what's your, your kind of message on that? So the, the project I did this summer was not particularly dedicated to night trains. It was dedicated right. to cross-border railways in the European Union in total. Um, night trains are one important component of that. Basically, what you reach is a situation where if no one really wants to take a train in the daytime that lasts more than six hours, right? That's kind of the cutoff point where people go, hang on a minute, that's starting to get a bit long. The moment you get beyond that, you could put people onto a night train. They also then save a night in a hotel when they get to their destination. And so for a night train that would last somewhere between nine and 12 hours, you can manage to do those longer distances. Now, the difficulty was that those night trains died out a lot in the late 1990s, early 2000s. 2000s, the kind of era of Ryanair and cheap flights. And it's very important to then potentially bring those back. Now, we are more conscious of environmental concerns when we travel now. But the difficulty is, is the railway companies themselves are not very keen on bringing back those night trains because you don't earn as much money if you operate a night train route as you do if you operate a high speed daytime service like a TGV or an ICE. And so that's been one another aspect of my advocacy to say to the European Union, hey, could you create the, the sort of framework conditions to allow those types of new night trains to be able to come back um, providing lines, for example, that used to exist. So from where you're based normally in Brussels and where I'm based normally in Berlin, until 2003, there used to be a night train connecting those two uh, those two cities together because the daytime train takes almost seven hours. So not many people take a daytime train on that sort of route. And that's the type of line uh, that I think would be worthwhile bringing back. John, what are some of the most shocking and surprising uh, revelations that you've uh, made during this trip? I came up with quite a lot of pretty absurd ones, right? So there is... Um, a particularly absurd one at the border between Latvia and Lithuania. Um, so there um, it would connect Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, to Daugavpils, the second city of Latvia, right? Now, there is just 20 kilometers of train service missing at the border there. So the Lithuanians, they run their train to a village called Tuomantas, the last village in Lithuania. 280 people live there. They could run their train 20 kilometers further to a city of 80,000 people, the second city of Latvia. They have the trains, they have the staff, they could run it. All they need is an extra few liters of diesel fuel to run the train further across the border, but they don't. And when I went there, um, it was kind of absurd. I was on my bicycle crossing the border. There were actually people who had taken a bus to the final station in Latvia before the border. They were crossing the border on foot to get into Lithuania, right? Now, that's just crazy. Those railway companies could, um, could easily collaborate. 
Or another one which loads of people would want to do is the borders between France and Spain, right? This is a place where the railway infrastructure is really good. There are five cross-border railway lines on that border between France and Spain, and three of them have data problems, right? So the trains run, but if you want to cross a border, for example, at La Tour de Carole in the middle of the Pyrenees, very scenic railway line, it all actually works really well. But you try and put that into any travel database, you don't even find the trains on the Spanish side unless you know of the specific database in which the timetables are to be found. Now, that ought to be really easy. The trains run, but unless you know where to search for the, the connection, right? If you search on SNCF or Deutsche Bahn or any of the major websites, you don't find the trains on the Spanish side. So those are just two examples of the crazy things that you end up uh, that you end up digging up. So, so you're gonna you have these recommendations uh, that that you want to communicate. Are you going to kind of organize a, a, another campaign uh, saying you know to improve railways? This is what we need to do. And how? effective do you think that uh, Twitter and social media is going to be in, 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 in bringing your message to the people that uh, that need to be, you know, to hear it? So there's there might be a, a follow-up campaign kind of cross-border rail to next year, and I'm having some conversations at the moment about exactly what to do. Do I go to the borders I didn't go to this time? Do I go to external borders of the EU? Um, I was actually earlier this week in 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 Croatia and in Montenegro, where there are a whole bunch of sustainable transport and railway problems. So maybe cross-border rail Balkans would work. Um, so I'm thinking about that for next year. The problem is, is who among policymakers really wants to listen and can really want to act? Now, one of my problems is with Brussels policymakers, notably the European Commissioner for Transport, Adina Valian, who has a reasonable social media presence, right? She's present on Twitter, even writes a sort of blog once in a while. But policymakers, do they want to listen? Now, if they do want to listen, social media is a really good way of managing to do that listening, right? I've presented a whole series of problems with European railways, but does the European Commission really want to listen and really want to act? Now, I do not get any answers from the European Commission or the European Commissioner on social media as a result of this project. Now, I might be able to reach people like you, I reach friends of mine, I managed to reach commission officials at the lower levels in the um, in the administration. I've managed to reach some national decision makers, notably in Czechia, in Austria, and in Italy uh, via this project. And I've also reached some senior people in railway companies. But really, the crucial one has to be the European Commission for Transport. And the European Commission for Transport at the moment talks a good talk about railways, but doesn't really properly want to act. And I've not really been able to crack that one yet, uh, particularly not via, via social media. Later this autumn, when I'm speaking at different events in Brussels, most notably at the end of October, hopefully that will be the beginning um, of being able to get the EU institutions to directly listen. Yeah, I think it's a process of awareness, you know, where you need to make people aware of the problem. And then amplification. And I think, you know, obviously you already have a pretty big network of people that can amplify the message. Yeah. This, this discussion is very national. We have where I live in Germany and where I'm actually calling from today from France. We have very national debates about our railways. What's the future of Deutsche Bahn? What's the future of SNCF? We don't really have a Europeanized debate about rail, right? And in as far as there is one, it's often very much focused on the big cities, right? How good is Paris to Brussels? How much good is Brussels to Berlin? These kind of things, right? 
But there are more than 200 cross-border railway lines in the European Union, often connecting quite forgotten regions, right? And I went to all of these regions, right? Like, the best news is at the border of Slovakia to Hungary, right? That would not be the place that puzzles would think would be really good news for cross-border railways. Um, and so that's quite important as well to basically say, hey, we need to think about this completely Europe-wide. Because basically, the moment you cross a border by train in Europe, everything gets more complicated. Ticketing, timetabling, reliability, also doing COVID, some countries just cut their international railways altogether and then have not reached the stage even now that they had before the COVID pandemic. Right. Now, um, you're, you know, a person who's traveled probably the most extensively uh, on trains that, of anyone I know. Um, so what is your favorite train line, you know, for practical reasons and for somebody who just wants, you know, a scenic or whatever, what, what is your uh, advice and maybe the ones that people don't know about? Right, so the best I had this summer was actually was in Spain. Um, it was from Zaragoza to Vigo, um, going right across northern Spain. Now, to me, this was a, play, a part of Europe I didn't really know, um, and particularly the, the landscapes that changed along that the course of that railway line were wonderful. One that I can highly recommend is actually outside the European Union. One of Europe's great railway lines is between Bergen and Oslo in Norway. Uh, so if you want an incredibly scenic right. route, I can highly recommend that one. And uh, um, a kind of a secret kind of is the best night trains in Europe are actually in Finland. Um, they are very modern, very deluxe, have a wonderful dining car on board. Um, and so if you really want to know how you can do travel at night in a way that like the rest of Europe, if they had night trains that good, my political work would be done um, if we could have connections between, um, uh, I don't know, uh, Paris and Vienna that were as good as the connections between Helsinki and uh, northern Finland. So those are a few uh, that I can that I can highly recommend. Of course, anything that's mountainous as well, any of the routes through Austria and Switzerland are always, uh, always a joy as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a very powerful, uh, you know, story behind railways, which is, you know, beyond the practical uh, thing of going from A to B, but it's also uh, the story of the journey, experiencing a journey by seeing things, uh, potentially having a murder mystery unfold as right. you go from Paris to Istanbul or something like that. But what's really important here is there is great public support for more travel on the rails, right? Who's against traveling by train, right? Now, a lot of people may have had a bad experience doing so, but they kind of think they ought to do it more. But the difficulty is, is the sector is quite old fashioned, quite backward looking in many places. And it often feels as a regular railway passenger, you're fighting the railway companies rather than actually trying to do something along the same lines as them. Now, the company and the country that's doing it right in the EU is Austria. You have an impeccably good national railway company, OBB, that is very well run, is expanding its international routes. You have a really good transport minister who works together with the railways. And they basically say, providing our trains are full, even if they're only borderline profitable, we just want to run more lines. They keep it really simple. Now, what Austria does also, to some extent, what, what Czech Republic does to some extent, what Switzerland does, although they subsidize their railway so much, maybe what they do is financially not within the reach of many European countries. But basically, what Austria and what Czechia do, that will be to say, okay, there are plenty of other European countries that could potentially match that, then we'd be in a much better spot. Yeah, and I think, you know, with the picture of an energy crisis, the fact that, you know, airplanes uh, are just create a, a much bigger footprint, 
and I, I think to to travel by train, I think you have to have a different mindset. I think you have to to be a bit more relaxed, enjoy the journey. Uh, but I think there's a huge potential. But there's a need for a a change of awareness uh, and and perhaps you know an organized campaign at a European level to bring the cultural, the story behind trains, as well as all the practical advantages. So, uh, well, looking forward to, to hearing more uh, on that soon. Now we have time for some recommendations. Sorry, you got you got interrupted by our jingle for recommendations, but uh, I will come back to you. So what are your recommendations, John? So very important, bearing in mind, most of the people watching this are probably somehow EU connected people. What my job I see as a kind of advocate here is to kind of bridge between the sort of EU world and the rail and sustainable transport world. So what I'm going to suggest to you is one book and three Twitter accounts that are really important for the kind of rail side of this equation, right? So the book I recommend is called Europe by Rail, The Definitive Guide by Nikki Gardner and Suzanne Kreese. And they are um, uh, journalists who also run a, a magazine called Hidden Europe, and they are at Hidden Europe on Twitter. Now, if you want an overview, it's mostly focused on if you're trying to go on holiday by train, that's the main focus there. But the book is really good. You want a kind of how to do this type of guide. Uh, them and the account on Twitter is a really good place to start. So that's the recommendation for the book and its authors. Then three Twitter accounts to follow. So the first is probably the best known commentator on railways. It is a gentleman called Mark Smith, called, and he calls himself the man in seat 61. So he's at seat 61 on Twitter. He will explain to you, as a British guy, he will explain to you how to get predominantly from the UK to pretty much anywhere in the world without flying and predominantly relying on trains, and has videos and introductions to explain to you all of the practicalities about how to do that. The second account is one called Dining Car, so it's at underscore Dining Car. That is about uh, the best ways to get good food on trains. So that's one of those things about experience. Sit down, have a nice meal. Um, a particular favorite of mine, because I live in Berlin, is the train from Berlin to Prague. It has a wonderful dining car on the train, and it's a joy to sit up next to the window, watching the Elbe River out of the window between Dresden and Prague, uh, while having a good beer um, or a nice dinner on the train. So dining car is the place to go for all of those tips. And the third um, is a gentleman called Lennart Farnenmüller, who tweets under the username at Lenny underscore do underscore Nord. Um, he's exactly the type of person who helps you understand railways works in the railway industry and is very generous with his time to explain to you why do some things work and other things don't work. A kind of sort of person who helps me as a policy person really understand why railways do or do not work. He's based in Germany, so has his main focus is on German railways. But as Germany is so central to all of them and many international railway routes in Europe, Leonard is an excellent person to follow for the technicalities of European railways. And he's exactly the sort of person I kind of wish the European Commission uh, would listen to a bit more as well. And he's very friendly and very open. So those are three accounts um, I can recommend and one book. Fantastic. Well, I will, I will be, I'll, I'm checking Hidden Europe and I'll, I'll be checking the other ones. Uh, my book recommendation actually is Think Again, which I think is a good piece of advice for people who want to rethink travel, uh, but it's in general challenging preconceptions, looking at tricks and kind of, you know, uh, evidence-based approaches to challenge the way you think about certain problems. So uh, very good. Uh, it's actually the subtitle is The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. So a good old Socratic uh, piece of advice. 
Uh, and now, uh, Leora, I see in your hashtag, uh, you're going to talk about Iran. Yeah, my recommendation is to advocate for the women and men in Iran uh, and not for the regime. For many years, uh, all the European and Western countries have been talking to the regime and uh, not for the people in Iran. And I think we need to speak out now. There's a real chance to tip over the regime. So use that hashtag, use all the hashtag, use the hashtag um, for, for all the people that they've killed, women who showed just a little bit of hair or more hair, who are now burning up their headscarves. If you want more information about this, I can recommend two podcasts. One, which is more generic, which is a an interview from Sam Harris with, um, Mah, uh, with uh, Jasmine Mohammed. It's called Leaving the Faith. Uh, which is now free uh, to listen to the entire podcast because some are for subscribers only, um, which is very insightful. It goes into her family background. She really uh, talks about why um, um, a headscarf is not just a freedom of choice. It's not just a choice, and it is really uh, something that suppresses women. She personally lived under, uh, under very strict um, Islamic rule in her family in Canada. And when she went to uh, to the police and, and even to a judge, they told her, well, you know, because you're from this family, uh, we're not going to protect you. Um, and she felt very discriminated against because um, obviously she said, if, if I'd been Swedish or Canadian, uh, she was Canadian, but Canadian uh, born and not from a different background because she was Egyptian, then I would have been protected. So she says there's a very strange double standard and she asks everyone to speak out. And if you prefer Instagram, then you can watch this. Um, we're going to put it in the chat, a reel by Masi Alinajad. She is on all the channels right now. She's a very good speaker, very emotional. And she basically explains everything that's happening in Iran right now and why she needs every one of us to speak out. And she says, we don't need you to save us. We can save ourselves. We just need you guys to stop uh, saving the regime and shaking hands with them and stop coming to our countries and putting headscarves on uh, when we're trying to burn them and we're, we're being imprisoned and killed for them. So stop coming and appeasing our leaders, doing interviews with them with headscarves on when we um, are being killed for them. So she's asking to us to stop saving the regime and uh, start advocating for the real feminists, which are the women in Iran and Afghanistan. So those are my recommendations for the week, fun stuff. Thank you. And we're, we're, we'll have those uh, posted as well on our channels and you can retweet your sharing a lot of things about Iran. Uh, so for people who want to find out more, they can follow you, uh, Lira, and follow the various hashtags. Uh, John, thank you very much for sharing your insights and uh, different links. We'll be following up on this. Uh, and uh, I hope everybody has a fantastic weekend, a sunny weekend, maybe in Brussels and uh, hopefully also in France and in Prague. Who knows? So um, see you all next week. See you online and see you on Friday live. Oh, thank you for it. joining us, John. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Leora. Thank you, John. Bye, yeah. guys. Bye.